We're historians at CPET doing a... There you go. There it right? is. Right like, there. They let Nailed us alone it. in a room together doing, talking about something that's historical. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Center Ed Teachings Podcast, Run Out of CPET. Um, Last week we were talking about school choice and now we're picking up these kind of interesting and controversial topics with talking about uh, school segregation in the U.S. And so today I have a fellow historian with me um, who's going to give us the lay of the land and maybe a little bit about yourself. So Erica, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi everybody, my name is Erica Kitzmiller. I'm a lecturer in the program in social studies education here at Teachers College and as Matt said, we we are historians. We are going to be doing a podcast today um, on segregation, school segregation. Um, I did my PhD work at Penn, and I write a lot about educational resource inequities in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania in general, and I'm here in New York doing some research in schools as well with the New York Historical Society and the Center for Women's History. So I'm very excited to be chatting with you all today. And you don't have that much else going on. So. No, right. <laughs> Um, So to get into this conversation about school segregation, I think it's helpful to think about school segregation, not in this particular moment, but kind of historically how this has come to be and how that leads to where we are now. Um, Talking about why this matters as an issue, whether um, there are cases to be made for some form of school segregation, and then what does it currently look like and what does that mean going forward? So I guess, Erica, can you start out with kind of giving our audience just a brief overview of what were the different forms of segregation, specifically in the North and the South? How did those come to be and evolve over time? So generally, school segregation and segregation in general in the United States is separated into two things. De jure segregation, which is a type of segregation or separation that is enforced by law or some kind of legal statute, and de facto segregation, which is generally um, ascribed to personal preferences. So the way that one might think about this is that um, pretty much de jure segregation resided in the southern part of the United States with separate bathrooms that were governed by law, separate train, um, you know, trains that were governed by law, separate places in the bus bus that were also governed by law. Um, And de facto segregation is generally ascribed to being a northern kind of segregation, even though these these borders, as historians know, are very blurry. Um, But people in the north would often say that it was because of their housing preferences, where they preferred to live, what kind of communities they wanted their children to reside in and their families to live in, the types of schools they preferred their children to go, even though we have numerous instances historically in which these preferences were backed by policy, but not necessarily statue in the north. So those are generally the ways we think about it. Je jure versus de facto segregation. Yeah, and I just want to build up on that blur that you were talking about. I mean, Richard Rothstein has done some great work on this, right? That that housing segregation was actually through law. And so it's the same kind of thing, although different over time. And I think it's important to think about why those distinctions matter, because as we think about how school segregation has evolved over time, if you have housing segregation that has still persisted, um, and there's only so much willing, you're willing to mess with those housing boundaries to integrate schools, you're not necessarily going to be successful. Whereas in the South, schools are more integrated currently than they are in the North, in part because people are more likely to live together, but there are some other things happening now, which we'll um, talk about a little bit later. So overlaying all that type of history um, is obviously Brown v. Board, which In 1954, Supreme Court says that we cannot have schools that are segregated in law um, because of unequal educational opportunities. Um, And this starts desegregation in air quotes because it's not really till the 60s 
um, as we've talked about previously on this podcast, with some other legislation, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, the Civil Rights Act, that really invokes and puts a carrot for southern states to desegregate. Uh, By 1972, although there are some other important Supreme Court cases in between, the Milliken v. Bradley case takes place um, in Detroit and at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is hearing this case where the argument is being made that because of white flight, because of the demographic changes between Detroit and its suburbs, that there can't be meaningful integration within Detroit and that there has to be integration between Detroit and the suburbs. Uh, The lower courts rule in favor of this, uh, then it's overturned, and then it goes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says that the suburban districts have no responsibility to help Detroit desegregate. They would if the state had something to do with drawing district lines, which would then have made it the state creating that um, segregation, which they would have had the remedy. The irony, which Thurgood Marshall pulls out in his dissent, is that the state actually did create the district lines. Um, And so that's kind of how we have this urban-suburban divide and why integration has never happened over that. Um, So after giving that kind of brief overview, why does school segregation matter? Why why is it something that we're continuously talking about and something that we find so important? I mean, I think one of the main reasons why school segregation or school integration in terms of moving forward matters is that um, we know that white schools have more resources historically than black schools for a variety of reasons. Some of these have to do with the things Matt was just speaking about, the urban and suburban divide. So the tax dollars right across the city line are astronomically higher. Um, I was just reading in Philadelphia, I think it's $23,000 in Lower Marion, $13,000 in the city of Philadelphia, and those numbers, if they're wrong, can be found in the United States uh, Civil Rights Commission report on school segregation that was just published in January. Um, So to think about, like, you have $10,000 less per child Mm -hmm. in your schools, um, and Philadelphia being the school district in Pennsylvania that has the highest percentage of students of color, just like New York City versus, you know, if you go over Westchester, that boundary is, 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 a, is a racial divide, not only in terms of which students are in the classroom, but also what resources are there. Um, and we also easily know that resources do matter, um, contrary to some academic research that says that they don't, that resources and money actually does matter um, for academic and social outcomes for all children. Um, that's why people try to move to the suburbs for better schools um, mm-hmm. and try to get over that Westchester uh, boundary as much as they possibly can. But also, I think integration really matters um, because it sets up a narrative that children and teachers are to blame for the mm-hmm. academic outcomes um, because they don't have the resources that they need to have equitable and adequate education, the kind of education that children, that families want for their kids and that teachers want to be able to provide for their kids. And so if you have a predominantly black school and the resources are lower, mm-hmm. it should be no surprise that the outcomes across the board, starting in kindergarten, are lower for those children. Um, and so it just sets up inequity from the start. Um, yeah, and actually Khalil Muhammad, another historian, has a great take on this that what emerges is the statistical narrative of school failure, of individual student failure that um, neglects all of that resource inequality that emerges and it creates this really pernicious narrative about urban schools, about students of color, about students in poverty who are attending these schools, which further... Um, I don't know, entrenches people in their stands for keeping schools segregated. I think there's also um, 
a more maybe conceptual claim or aspirational claim to make about why school integration matters as opposed to segregation, and that is the ability of a diverse society to come together and speak with one another, um, right? Because a democracy is that we are not supposed to be so polarized that we can't talk with one another, that we can't reconcile with issues that are present in the republic. But <laughs> if the last two years have shown anything, it's that we are at that point where there is such a bifurcation that it, it's hard to overcome that. Right. Yeah, I don't know if I'm articulating myself well there, but... I also think in, in response to that, too, Matt, is that school integration really matters because the public schools, at least in the imagination of most Americans, are the place in which the whole community comes <laughs> together. And so if we have segregated schools, then how can we actually say that's happening? And I, in preparation for this podcast, I was saying to Matt that you know, I've been in classrooms in urban school districts where we're, we're teaching Brown v. Board and we're mm-hmm. saying segregated schools are unconstitutional and they you know, should be outlawed by the federal government. And then my students turn and look at one another and realize that they're sitting in an entirely segregated classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that disparity between this idea of equity, equality of opportunity, that everyone has a starting chance to make it and have the American dream in the United States is so clear. And yet the public schools are supposed to be one of those forms that are supposed to, you know, undermine inequity. And yet school segregation still exists everywhere in America. Yeah, and it may be belaboring the point, but your story reminded me of when I was teaching in Detroit, we did a pen pal project with one of the suburbs. And one of the first projects that we had to do after the students wrote each other their first letters was um, for each class to take pictures around their school, create a PowerPoint about their school with information about their school to share with the other. And when my students saw the suburban school, how big it was, the quality of the gyms, the quality of these resources, it created this, this tension and a feeling almost of an inadequacy, which you know, at least in my eyes, was not true at all, but it's hard to justify when you say one society gives a group of people this and that same society gives a different group of people this. We did a similar project um, in Philadelphia where we took students from a city school in Philly and we took them to a suburban school and I wouldn't even say it was inadequacy, it was just outright anger and um, outrage at America that um, the cafeteria at the suburban school had you know, full service salad mm-hmm. bar, it had, you know, hot food everywhere, it was, I mean, it was just a beautiful cafeteria, and I, one of my students started crying in the middle yeah. of the cafeteria, because she felt like she had thought that she was at a pretty good Philadelphia public school, and yet the resources, and this was many years ago, but the resources there, they don't even have a working cafeteria in that school, because the school, re- the facility is so outdated that everything is brought in, so to think about, like, Number one, that she didn't necessarily know just how great the disparities were between her urban school and mm-hmm. the suburban school that was 20 minutes from there. Um, but also seeing that visibly was very difficult for her to think about, like, she lives in this country in which we're supposed to be saying, you all get an right. equal chance and we want you all to succeed and live the dream. And yet she knew that there were so many things that were holding not only her but her peers back from, from actually accessing all of the things that those kids in the suburbs had. It was very difficult. And there's, so there's that student internalization, but I mean, it also works in other ways. So the, in our project, the final thing that we did was a joint field trip to the University of Michigan um, to do a campus tour. And so the first thing that happened was students came into the school or into, excuse me, the University of Michigan, this conference room, which they were going to be presented on. Uh, The Detroit students were put on one side of the room and the uh, suburban students were put on the other side of the room. And the segregation being incredibly clear there was one thing, but then when the speaker was presenting about the opportunity of applying to the University of Michigan, his body posture the entire time 
was turned to the students from the suburb and spoke to the students from the suburb. And when my students from Detroit raised their hand for questions were dismissed outright because there was already this assumption that they would not be able to go to a, a university as prestigious as the University of Michigan. And so that, that has an effect, right? And I think that's part of the reason why we keep talking about this. Um, so now this might seem like a really weird switch in the conversation, um, but is there an argument one can make for school segregation? And maybe an argument for school segregation isn't the best way um, to argue that, but for consolidating a certain population together in one school. I mean, in some ways, I think of it as like a cautionary tale around mm-hmm. school segregation and who bears the brunt of integration, right? Because generally, integration or movements towards school integrations are put forth by a multiracial coalition or by black liberals who believe that school integration is at the center. I think today that's less true than it was before because I can think of many black radicals who are who are advocating for school segregation, mm-hmm. you know, very forcefully in the public sphere, which is really, really important. So I don't want to, like, dismiss that as well. Um, but in 1935, um, as many historians know, um, W.B. Du Bois published a, an article in the journal Negro Education called Does the Negro Need Separate Schools? And in this article, he was really advocating for um, African-Americans to look at the resources, um, particularly around the kinds of teachers and the kinds of pedagogy that we had in black schools, particularly in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and I can think of black teachers who um, really gave their students access to a type of pedagogy and Afrocentric curriculum that would not have existed if they weren't in segregated schools. Right. Now, this article was very contentious, obviously, and remains contentious today, thinking about Du Bois, <laughs> you know, the great black scholar, the sociologist, the historian, um, advocating for segregation, which was a big turn from where he had started mm-hmm. um, as a forceful person of integration, particularly in the early 20th century. But thinking about, like, why it was happening then makes sense. And then... In response to black power in the late 1960s, there were many activists who argued that, and rightfully so, that black children bore the brunt of any kind of integration. So black children were the ones who were often bused in voluntary desegregation movements, particularly in the North in places like Detroit, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Philadelphia. Famously Um, Boston. Right, in Boston, right? So to think about... You know, why are black families the one who have to put their children on a bus to be bused 45 minutes mm-hmm. and then to go to a predominantly white school in which many of these children in a predominantly white neighborhood? Right. In which many of these children encountered racism on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's evidence, I mean, oral histories that I've done which have argued that actually we didn't want to send our children to those schools and they ultimately, some families pulled their children out. Veronica Joyner in, in Philadelphia, who is a very big educational activist in the 1970s, she pulled her child out of Northeast High School, which was a predominantly white high school, because of the racism that he encountered as a black child in a white school, both from students, parents, and teachers. So there is a question about, like, if we're advocating for school integration, that it has to be thought of very equally and equitably so that black families are not the ones or Hispanic families are not the people bearing the brunt of these policies. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's always something that, I don't know if troubled me is the right word, but that that I raise questions about is everyone talks about the desegregation in Little Rock, Arkansas. So a school of hundreds of kids with nine African-American students that considered desegregation. It's at what, you know, what is the metric for that? And we know the Supreme Court now with at least what they've said about college doesn't like the idea of quotas, but I mean, how do you think about that in a meaningful way that distributes the responsibility 
of who has to bear the brunt of desegregation and think about that. I, I mean, I guess I don't necessarily have much to say there. I'm just kind of reiterating what you're making me think right. about. Right, and I was also thinking about Rachel Devlin's new work about um, the fact that many of the first children to desegregate all black schools, particularly in the South, were girls. Mm-hmm. And so to think about, like, what is the prototype of the quote-unquote correct student mm-hmm. to be the desegregator, the first child to walk into that school, and why were female students seen as the more appropriate choice for desegregation. So, I mean, her book is... Like, it just came out, Basic Books. Um, I would encourage anyone who's interested in this topic to really think about also the gendered nature of the history of desegregation and schooling and why black girls were the ones that had to walk in first. Yeah, and we'll make sure to add that book to the show notes. So if you want to check it out there, um, you can go ahead and do that. Um, So I think a lot of that conversation, as it will between two historians, (laughs) has, has been about the past. And so segregation looks somewhat similar, but also very different than it did when we're talking about in the 60s or 70s. Um, I mean, so housing segregation obviously sticks out. Can you maybe speak to that just a little bit more? Yeah, so I was, I mean, as a historian, I guess, I was glad that Matt brought up um, the Federal Housing Administration's, um, you know, HOLC maps, which were published during, um, as I like to remind my students, during a Democratic president's um, office, during FDR's office. Um, And in many ways, those maps set the stage for um, hard-lined housing segregation based on racial terms, right? Mm-hmm. So if we look at those maps that were published in 1937, um, and they're freely accessible now, thanks to Rustin's amazing book and the yeah. work at the University of Richmond. So you can go online and see those, and we can put that also on the notes. Um, those maps really um, dictated which neighborhoods were deemed quote-unquote worthy mm-hmm. and which ones were not. So the dangerous neighborhoods were black neighborhoods. I mean, mm-hmm. it mapped perfectly onto race. And if you look at the racial dot map today, which looks at housing segregation across the United States, and you can zero in on your own communities, in many ways the patterns that were established in 1937, while they have changed somewhat, remain pretty much the same in, in some communities. Um, I think that's interesting in, the, in this new Civil Rights um, Commission report on se- segregation and resource equity. Um, schools are more segregated today than they were in 1954, which I think would surprise most Americans, unless yeah. you're a historian <laughs> and you have to read these things all the time. Um, but I think that's a really important thing to consider, that we have had um, more than 50 years of, of desegregation being unconstitutional, and yet the de facto, quote-unquote, de facto segregation patterns have actually hardened over time. Um, which I think is is related to housing, but that's not only related to housing. And I'm going to let Matt talk about the other ways, the other things that have contributed to making segregation higher today than it was in 1954. Yeah, and just to try to pull some of these threads of the conversation together, when we were, we were talking about, you know, Brown to Milliken, the housing segregation that we see continue today, in part the reason that legally there can't be desegregation across those bounds is in part because of what was established in Milliken. But in addition to that, as Erica was alluding to, um, school choice movements and charter schools in a lot of ways have been accused of contributing to segregation. And in part, um, it seems to be true. And, And that's one, because when politicians often talk about school choice, as we talked about on the podcast last week, they're often targeting urban communities and poverty, and specifically urban communities and poverty of color. Um, school choice is not being met in that rhetoric to include families who decide to move to the suburbs or move to decide to a different school district to send their students, even though that's an enactment of school choice. There's no talk about reining that in or expanding to other families. And so the population that's targeted for that is just um, what's the word? augmenting 
the segregation that already exists. And I think, you know, a lot of people, if you look at charter school promotional materials, there are some who are trying to preach integration, but often you'll see it is targeted at an audience of color, um, specifically in communities in poverty, to say this is where your student can get a good education. And there is no um, pointing to the idea of integration, just rather this is going to be a better education for your child than a traditional public school. Um, and that's debatable, and if you want, if you want to hear on that debate, to go back to last week's podcast. Um, but the other thing that we're starting to see, and I guess have seen for quite a while, is the redrawing and kind of gerrymandering of school districts. And so when it comes to voting, the gerrymandering of districts has been getting a lot of attention the last couple of years, but the same thing has been going on with school districts um, for decades. And there's actually a website which we'll put in the show notes which shows kind of the absurd shapes in New York City, um, you know, the greatest city of diversity in the country, of these gerrymandered school districts that confine particular peoples to particular schools in particular areas. Um, And in the South, over the last year or two, there has been the emergence of the creation of new freedom districts. Um, Alabama is, I believe, one of the states that has done this, and I think Tennessee is another that I've read that have done this. Both of these are in the show notes. And what these districts have done is essentially disassociate from the public schools and created a whole new school just outside where the district was before that is only meant for a certain particular students, and those students are increasingly just white students. And so it's kind of crazy that that's happening, but that's what's continuing to happen. So given that landscape, Erica, I mean where do we go from here? Do we fight for desegregation, integration? I, I don't know. What do we do? I mean, I think the fight for desegregation is really important, right, in terms of historically. Um, mm-hmm. It is a way that students were given access um, to different types of schools and also to hold school districts accountable for their resource inequities and, and inside school districts. Um, I think one of the things that often concerns me is that the conversation, particularly in the academic circle around desegregation or school integration, is more the conceptual idea of the celebration mm-hmm. of diversity, and not that I don't appreciate diversity in all its myriad forms. I want to be clear about that. Um, as someone who studies resource inequities and trying to think about funding inequities, particularly within a school district, um, so in New York, like school choice also benefits white families mm-hmm. who start charter schools or have robust PTAs in which they donate hundreds if not thousands, you know, hundreds right. of thousands of dollars um, to their schools um, to make sure that their students have access to arts programs mm-hmm. and libraries that are, are better resourced than, than other schools. And within the school districts, that causes a lot of problems, right, in terms of, like, which schools get better resources and which ones don't, and oftentimes that's mapped along race. So I think one of the important things is to really marry the conversation around desegregation and integration to not just resource equity, but resources based on student need. So that resources would be more allocated, like better allocated Mm -hmm. to schools that actually had students who had needs. Because one of the things I also think that's challenging about the desegregation integration conversation is that we're expecting schools to do so much of what society just isn't willing to do. So that schools cannot make up for families who do not have access to decent jobs, decent housing, decent food on the table, those kind of things, Mm -hmm. and yet we put our hope in schools. So the resources need to be allocated to the communities 
which are in the most impoverished state, right? Not just in their schools, but in their communities writ large, and to have a conversation in which desegregation is coupled with resource equities, which that new report by the United States Civil Rights Commission so brilliantly does because it's, it argues that it's, it's not just that schools are more segregated, it's that they're segregated, and the more segregated schools, the schools that serve black and brown children in the United States of America, are woefully under-resourced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that conversation really needs to happen um, around around academic circles and activist circles. I think they're, they're a little bit more ahead of the game in, the, in that arena. And, and I think there's a lot that I really value in what you're saying, but I'm also wondering at what point do we define what equity means? What integrated means? Because, I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones mm-hmm. has written about this extensively. The idea of diversity is increasingly popular, but diversity is within the confines of there's not, there's a white majority. And that white majority is... I don't know what, often at least 70 or 80%. And it's this idea of tokenism, in a sense, reemerging. And I, I, I don't know how you legislate that, e- that equality. I don't know how you do that in a way that doesn't put burdens on um, communities that have often had to bear these burdens. I, I just I want to know for myself where those definitions come from. And I don't think I can put that together yet. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a moving a moving scale in terms of like what people want um but i also think it speaks to like our earlier conversation about who do they want not just Mm -hmm. what percentage but you know they don't necessarily want children white families middle class white families want diversity but they want diversity from the same class structure as theirs um because to rock the boat around poverty and to have poverty in their schools is, is sometimes very unsettling to many families who are not impoverished um even though if we really think about what schools were founded to do by Horace Mann, that is mm-hmm. actually what they were founded to do in Massachusetts. So um, we've come a long way from the mid-19th century um, and that radical vision of what he had in store for his public schooling in America. So maybe in this podcast that we aimed to talk about school segregation, where it's been historically where it is now and where it's going, we're actually just returning to fundamental questions about what is the role of the public school? Um, who has access to it? But then, even more broadly, how does the school connect to other public policy and public institutions? Um, and is equality of opportunity something that we're truly striving for? Or is it something else? Um, by the way, listeners, those questions are for you. We're, we're not going to try to answer them. Um, but as we wrap up here, are there any other final thoughts that you have that you want to share that can maybe either extend the conversation, recommend something for someone to read, or, I don't know, I guess propose even an alternative that we haven't discussed here. I mean, I always think it's really interesting to think about the pioneers of desegregation and how that walk into Little Rock affected their lives, right, Mm -hmm. and their families, and how much they sacrificed to do that on behalf of so many American children, but to also hear... Like the 50th anniversary of Little Rock, you know, to think about like what was what was their life like, not just mm-hmm. in Little Rock, but to think about how did that open doors or not necessarily open doors, and what trauma did they experience because they were the first ones to walk through that school door. I think that's really important for us to think about, um, not only as historians but as people trying to craft new policies. So, um, is desegregation like what ends are we trying to reach with with this movement? Yeah, I, I mean, I think. Again, like, I don't have enough answers here, but I think thinking about what an integrated society looks like and how that operates um, and sketching that out in the idealistic and then working from policy there, but keeping in mind 
this history because saying that schools need to desegregate is not as simple as all of a sudden schools being desegregated and there being equality. I think the history which many historians and Nicole Hannah-Jones have really done a great job of elucidating is that it's not a catch-all history of happiness. There, there, there's been a lot of turbulence there. Um, so again, sorry to be a Debbie Downer on the pod, but make sure you tune into next week when we liven things up a little bit. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll talk to you.